welcome to Wheat Pete's Word here on Real Agriculture for Wednesday, December the 13th. Yeah, darn it. Wouldn't you know it? I get a little bit of a cold. It's not even bad. Where does it settle? In my voice box. <laughs> the one thing I use the most. It's okay. My voice really doesn't hurt. I'm not bad. But the sound will be off for this particular episode of Wheat Pete's Word. I do apologize for that. It won't maybe be quite as long as normal either. Okay, let's go. Yeah, so first, streamers off Lake Huron. Man, oh man, can they whack you. Eight inches of snow for some people. Still field work to get done. It's a challenge. You just, I think, rather than compact the daylight sort of things, it looks like it's an open winter so far. Slow down, hold off. Let's see if we can't get a little bit of frost to do that work because I think at some point, surely at some point, we're going to get there. Next, a grower calling in and saying, okay, Peter, so this is really interesting. A couple of weeks ago, you talked about 31 loaves of bread for a family of six back in the Victorian era. Well, how many acres of wheat would that take or like how does that relate to today's production? So the very best I can do is I went to the USDA website and they have records on wheat production starting back in 1867. So this is across all of the U.S. Back in 1867, the average wheat yield was around 11 bushels per acre. It ranged, you know, 11, 12, occasionally 15, but that was sort of the range. Today, now remember, this is all of the U.S. Today, they average about 50 bushels per acre. So that is five times, five times the yield that we got back in that era. So huge increases. Most of that, of course, happening since 1960 when we got the Green Revolution. By the way, you go back to 1949 in Ontario, my dad, who was a real farmer, he he was a Rob Templeman type, my great friend Rob Templeman. It's always about the gut feel. I'm a scientist and I apply the science to agriculture and I I hope I do that reasonably well, but I don't have that gut feel that some farmers do, like my great friend Rob. He can just look at the soil, pick it up, and know whether it's ready or not. My dad was one of those guys. In 1949, he joined the 50-bushel wheat per acre club. That was a huge deal in 1949. Like, that was basically unheard of. He was one of one or two or three people that had done that in his area. So um, lots of yield gains since then, and maybe that puts it a little bit into perspective. Hey, Bobby, why can't I go longer than 20 minutes on Wheat Pete's Word? It's because Pete says, period, full stop. So for the people that want more, not going to get more of this episode. And you can give me the feedback. You can tell me to go longer. But at the end of the day, I think lots of people would, would run out of steam at, at 15 minutes. When I go 20, I just think it's plenty long. It's Pete's rule, nobody else's. From Nature Nut Nick, an awesome suggestion. Don't forget, go to your winter air pressure in your tires. Now, Nick's, Nick's bang on as the temperatures get colder, the air in your tires shrinks because that's what happens 
And when that happens, your air pressure drops, you're much more likely to get a flat spot on the bottom of that, that when you pull it out of the shed next year, it's going to go down the road going womp, 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 womp. If you pump those tires up, then you don't run into that nearly as bad. And so it's, it's a great heads up from Nick. I think uh, one of those things that, that definitely we should all be doing. Uh, Nick, you should have told me about two weeks ago. I think I'm going to now pull my combine out to get it to the air compressor to do that. But I run low pressure, VF tires on my combine. We run them at 16 PSI. Oh, yeah. They're going to get a flat spot if I don't do something about that. Good, good comment. Thanks for that, Nick. Stuart saying, wow, Stuart invested in spray sense. So this is new technology on the sprayer. It monitors every nozzle on the sprayer. Stuart's had some issues kind of getting it going. It's new technology. But now that he has it basically working, he says he wishes he had it 50 years ago. It's just a great system. So there's just you know one example of new technology that can really help help make sure we're doing the right job and you know when you think about that you sometimes wonder why you don't get perfect weed control well if that nozzle over top of that weed had a little bit of blockage it was still spraying but it was maybe only at 75 percent the rate well, that can promote resistance it also can lead to weed escapes no doubt about that hey ken sending me a really cool picture by text putting big singles on his combine versus duels. And he called me up. We had a great discussion about soil health. Ken is, Ken is just awesome from a, that perspective. He's always tried to improve his soil. He sent me a picture. They took off some soybeans. And within five days, the earthworms had pulled all of that residue over top of their middens. So instead of a mat of soybean residue, he had just a whole bunch of piles of residue over top those earthworm middens. And he's going to big singles. And when he looked at that picture, the footprint on those big singles, versus the duels that he was taking off. Wow, what a difference. And we've talked lots about compaction. There's nothing wrong with duels, but these were fairly narrow duels. And you could see that most likely he was going to get less compaction out of those big singles. And just on that note, Trevor Syme from Australia tweeting out a picture. Now, in Australia... There's a lot of controlled traffic farming. Uh, they go to great lengths to do controlled traffic farming. In fact, they will put a, a conveyor, a belt conveyor on the buggy because they can't get the combine auger to go far enough to hit the buggy when the buggy is over staying in the controlled traffic lines. And so now you've got to put a, a belt conveyor on the buggy so that it goes underneath the auger of the combine and it brings the, the rest of the way to the buggy. Uh, can't, uh, pardon me, Trevor, tweeting out a picture where the buggy went off the tram lines. What a difference. Now, Remember as well, Australia is super dry. This was Western Australia. They don't get freeze-thaw cycles. They don't get nearly as many wet-dry cycles. They just are pretty much constantly dry. They do get rain, but, but not like we get here in Ontario, particularly not like we get here in Ontario over the winter. So they have to pay more attention to compaction because they don't have as many ways to alleviate it naturally the way that we do. But nonetheless, huge issue in Australia, huge issue in Ontario. Ken, good for you for doing something about it uh, just yeah wow all right want to move on adam tweeting to me okay pete so look at this weather forecast one night below zero is my wheat going to grow is it going to throw another tiller and 
you know, immediately I'm going, whoa, wait a minute. Let's back up two steps. First off, and Harry pointing this out on Twitter, do we want it to break dormancy? And the answer really is no, we don't want it to break dormancy yet because if it breaks dormancy and then we get cold temperatures, we can get either more death from winter kill, uh, just from pure low temperatures, because at its hardiest it, it will take minus 21 Celsius. If it comes to second stage dormancy, it's minus 9 Celsius. Man, we break dormancy, we get a minus 13 Celsius night. Uh, it, it's a worry. There's no question. It's a worry. And there's this other thing called cold injury in winter wheat. And that's when you don't kill the winter wheat, but it gets cold enough to do damage. And then you just get lower yield and you kind of go, why did we get lower yield? So Adam, I don't want the wheat to grow. Meanwhile, Mark at Napanee tweeting back that they got a 13 degrees Celsius warm rain. His wheat greened up and is growing. And that's basically what it takes is if you get over 10 degrees Celsius consistently and a warm rain would do that to the soil, 13 degree rain on, I don't know, four degree soil. Mark says he had almost no frost. You warm that up, you get to the crown level, that three quarters of an inch in the ground. Yeah, it's going to start to grow. Uh, now Mark's along Lake Ontario, so probably he doesn't have to worry as much about cold injury, but it's a different winter. There's no doubt about that. All right, I want to move on while I'm still on wheat. Pat sending me a, a direct message on Twitter saying, all right, Peter, so you've talked about corn being more efficient with its nitrogen if it has sufficient potassium. Does that hold true in wheat? And what a great question, Pat, and awesome for you to kind of put that together. And, and good that you can even remember, because I haven't talked about nitrogen efficiency with potash on, on corn for a while, but the the short answer is not that we're aware of. Wheat is almost non-responsive to potash. It's really, really interesting. It doesn't mean that you should grow wheat on low potash soils. You still want good potash levels for all crops. But wheat is almost non-responsive to potash. And there's nothing that I can find that would suggest that there's that wheat is better nitrogen use efficiency with potash in that mix. So uh, corn and wheat are different. I think that's just the reality. And if you if you come to the ag conference and you watch the video that that Josh Naselski and I did on wheat nutrient uptake, uh, and it's one of, like all you have to do is register virtually. Man, we really I think drive that point home well. The other question, Pat asks, well then what about chloride? I mean, I hear that chloride reduces disease in the wheat crop and the answer to that and I think I've talked about this before but not really so we do get a thing called physiological fleck in Washington state physiological fleck is tied to a chloride deficiency we have taken varieties that were highly susceptible to physiological fleck we have put potash on in the spring we do not see a difference in physiological fleck and it's the chloride really doesn't have much impact on disease oh if you put potash on wheat the data says you get about a bushel in yield it's it's essentially nothing but it is a bushel but the chloride on wheat effect i just don't think that's really really very uh, accurate from that perspective john sending me some great pictures he did a trial of the plow versus a chisel plow and, and interestingly enough not far john by the way is on heavy macton clay and on heavy clay, it gets tougher to make reduced 
tillage systems work. But not very far away from him, Brett also sent me some data where he looked at the farm at, which is essentially about a chisel plow of sorts versus the moldboard plow. And in both cases, the growers say, we got way better weed control with the moldboard plow than we did with the chisel plow. And so it really you know, makes me back up two steps. In, in John's situation, it was alfalfa. Well, okay, a moldboard plow is about 99% control on alfalfa. A chisel plow, you gotta run it shallow and you have to have sweeps that cover the ground entirely so that you slice through the alfalfa crown and you lift it and shatter it. You want to run those sweeps around four inches, three to four inches deep in the soil. John's saying that when they did it, the ground was super dry and that mat and clay is tough stuff, man. So the plow actually was tripping sometimes because it was that tough. The, the chisel plow was having trouble holding in the ground and you weren't getting that complete shear. So... The bottom line of this discussion is that, yes, we always compare to the moldboard plow. Yes, wheat peat is not a moldboard plow aficionado, and it's because of the erosive potential that you end up with when you use the moldboard plow. But if you're going to switch tillage systems, it takes time to figure out how to make that new tillage system work. And on heavy Macton clay, uh, the chisel plow is not my preferred move from the moldboard because it's just too heavy a dirt. I'd actually rather you tried strip till because I think it has more opportunity to compete with the moldboard plow. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But the other thing is that in John's case, drone footage and clearly the stand in the chisel plow, the corn stand had more holes in it. It wasn't as consistent. So there's, you know, there's more things going on there. And John, I think you just absolutely, yeah, you have to work to figure out that new tillage system. Uh, rare that when you move to something new, it works the first time out. Couple more things I'll try to get through before I, my voice absolutely wipes out. So a lot of buzz about a paper from Dr. Kelsey Gr Grisham and uh, She's now with North, North Dakota State University, but her PhD thesis looked at how much nitrogen came out of the soil versus how much nitrogen came from fertilizer. And in her study, 80% of the nitrogen in a corn crop, or 79%, they rounded to 80%, I think, uh, but, but, but it's close enough, uh, came from the soil and only 20% or 21% from the fertilizer. And that's got a lot of people questioning the amount of fertilizer we actually put on. And Dr. Emerson Nafziger did a great paper or article kind of going through that thought process. But at the end of the day, it's just not that simple. Because we put fertilizer nitrogen on, and the soil bugs, they like that fertilizer nitrogen, and so they're going to take some of that up, and in the process, they're going to release some other nitrogen that wasn't from the fertilizer, and that's going to become available to the crop. And so I think the, the key thing to remember here is what is the nitrogen response? And so as long as you are getting response to nitrogen, then economical response, then I think that is the right nitrogen rate, whether it comes from the fertilizer or it gets cycled through soil bugs and breaks down more organic matter. The one real note out of all of this, well, actually there's two or three real notes, but the one main note is if you are over fertilizing for nitrogen, then that's a bad thing. And Carl sent me a tweet 
on 140 pounds of nitrogen, he got 246 bushels per acre of corn. So 140 pounds of applied nitrogen, 246 uh, bushels of corn. That's awesome nitrogen use efficiency. It's below 0.6 pounds of nitrogen per bushel of corn that, that you actually get. So you, you go like, wow. If we could all do that, the typical thing, the corn calculator here in Ontario uses 0.8 pounds of nitrogen per bushel over the base rate that gets calculated. So it's complex, and I, I, you just can't get too caught up in where does it come from from that perspective. But there are a couple of really cool things out of that paper by Kelsey uh, Grisham, and one is that banded fertilizer always gets better nitrogen use efficiency than broadcast fertilizer. And it also showed that nitrate nitrogen gets into the plant more readily than either uh, ammonium or than urea nitrogen. And that's really interesting because when we start looking at side dress applications, should we actually stabilize those side dress nitrogen applications or not? And if it's put in the ground and covered, based on that study, you would actually say you're better off not to stabilize that nitrogen. 28% injected in the soil or, or knifed into the soil as long as you close the slot. Man, that you, you want that fertilizer to convert to nitrogen, that's for sure. Okay, cool. One last really interesting note, and I should have put this at the front, but John tweeting out, and again, John's from Australia, and this just shows you how different production systems can be around the world. Mouse damage. Now, how often do we think about mouse damage? That would be about never, but remember... Uh, mice can be a real plague in, in Australia. We've seen pictures where they had an outbreak and, oh my gosh, the number of mice that they can get is, is horrendous. But he, he grew canola after a failed, I think it was lentil crop. And the failed lentil crop, they left a lot of lentils in the field. Guess what? The mice feed on the lentils. They multiply. They then grew canola. They baited the mice twice. So they actually bait when they seed to, to, to try to reduce the mouse population. Baited twice. Still had a 10% loss in his canola stand. You could see in the aerial shot where there were big patches where there was no canola at all. The mice just just wiped it out and you know he was basically saying wow what do you do and and it's a bit like slugs here in ontario or in in the great lakes basin man if you have a lot of green material there to feed the slugs in the fall then the chances are the slug population builds up if you're growing corn it doesn't matter if you're growing soybeans and you get a high slug population or if you're growing canola spring canola you get a high slug population boy that can wipe you out just like the mice can so really interesting from that perspective hey look at that i've actually gone 18 minutes oh my gosh that's it that's all with a, a done in voice this is wheat beat with the word for wednesday the uh, 13th of december Hey, send me some messages, right? Give me some more questions to think about. We're getting into December. It's a little bit slower time of the year. I'd love some feedback. Meanwhile, I will be back next week, hopefully, with a better voice. Talk to you then.